So what makes a great leader anyway? Maybe you're thinking of somebody with a big personality, somebody who can make that fiery speech, the kind of person who, when she walks in the room, somehow the room changes. Somebody with that special charisma that compels you to follow, who has laid out a path that feels so special, it's like something you've never heard before. So this stereotype kind of misses critical attributes that make for standout leadership. And the lessons we learn about what those attributes are and how to look for them in others and develop them ourselves, well, those lessons can be learned almost anywhere where people gather, where change is demanded, and where services are provided. As nonprofit leaders, of course you know that. But today, our classroom will not be an office, your annual gala, or a boardroom. Nope, we'll save you from that. Today, our classroom is a restaurant bar. Our guest today, an author of a most intriguing book, has trained hundreds of folks to become more effective leaders. In this, she and I have some kindred spirit things going on. It's just that our classrooms might be just a bit different. One chapter of my guest's book is dedicated to the critical nature that empathy plays in effective leadership. As she says, everyone has a story. Today, together, you and I, we get the privilege of hearing hers. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it, and she is here to help. Dr. Harlan Rothberg bartended in New York City during her academic career. Today, she is a leadership trainer at Fortune 500 companies, small technology startups, and nonprofit organizations. Her unique brand of training is rooted in, yes, you guessed it, her experience tending bar. Dr. Rothberg is dual degreed in business and behavioral science and is a professor of strategy at the School of Management at Marist College, senior faculty of the Academy of Competitive Intelligence, and president of the consulting firm HNR Associates. She lives in Orange County, New York with her husband, dog, cat, and several part-time goats. <laughs> I got to come back to that. She makes a mean cocktail. And not coincidentally, she is the author of The Perfect Mix, Everything I Know About Leadership I Learned as a Bartender. Helen, thank you very much for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Um, okay, what's a part-time goat? A part-time goat. <laughs> what, what and what is it the rest of the time? Well, it's always a goat, but part-time oh. is mine, and that's in the I summers. See. Um, I, I get a, a mama and a kid and I have them eat the back end of my yard. They love poison ivy, bramble, um, poison oak. That to them is the most delicious thing. And I get to um, teach the baby how to take a little bit of brain from my hand and I get to watch them. They're hilarious and all they need is a bucket of water every day. So you can hire someone to mow the back end of your property or you could get some adorable goats. All right. Well, that's that's a gift with purchase on this podcast. I just want to say, um, and don't we all wish we had a few living things that all they needed was a bucket of water every day? Oh, it's my dream. I have three right. I have three grown children and um, uh, wood that they would only ask for a bucket of water every once in a while. So um, anyway, uh, Helen, I, I will tell you that when this book arrived on my desk, I was like. I know I'm having a conversation with this woman. <laughs> <laughs> the title was just 
ridiculously enticing. Uh, now, of course, I could not possibly be more Irish. Uh, so perhaps there's something in that as well. But let's set the stage for our listeners. You spent five years as a bartender in a restaurant bar in Gramercy Park in Manhattan. And that experience became the foundation for your career as a behavioral scientist, strategist, and an expert on leadership. Do I have that right? Absolutely right. <laughs> Absolutely. Everything um, else was just and I'm not laughing because I don't believe you. Uh, I'm just, uh, uh, I just think it's kind of joyfully fun. So at the time you were job hunting for your job as a bartender, you were pursuing an MBA and you needed a job. You cre- here's what I was impressed about when I read the book. You, you actually created your own little part-time job strategic plan and determined that bartending was the way to go. Can you tell everybody a little bit about that? Oh, certainly. So I needed to find a job. And, and I had been waitressing previously and done some bartending out uh, in a very different kind of bar when I was going to college. And what I needed while I was going to graduate school was a way to make enough money so I only needed to work two, maybe three nights a week. I needed to be close enough to where I was studying that I could walk over, but far enough away so that none of my professors would know that I was swilling gin because they would prefer I be running their statistics and I I prefer to not ever do any of that stuff. Um, I wanted to be in an area that I felt safe where I would be able to get home um, pretty easily at three or four o'clock in the morning when I was pulling down the gate. And most importantly, I wanted to be in a place that had really good food because this was going to be my good hot meal for the day and um, where the tickets would be high enough that it would be worth my while to work there. Were there other other categories of jobs that you, that you considered and rejected or was based on those criteria, did it just become bartender? Oh, absolutely. I considered going back to waitressing and then quickly said not. I I wanted a job where I'd make cash. That was part of it. Um, I just wanted to know what I was going home with. I didn't want to file tax returns at the time I was a student. I needed to maximize the situation. And I thought I had been a waitress for a bit, but you have very little control when you're a waitress over how much money you actually make because you don't place the, you know, you don't cook the food, you don't shop for the food, you don't create the menu, you can't determine how quickly the food gets out. I also wanted a job where there was some distance between myself and patrons. So a nice slab of wood between me and them was really good. I considered driving a cab. But mm-hmm. as a as a female uh, in those days at night in a cab, I didn't think it would be the safest thing to do. Um, and it was really, I had learned from catering and waitressing, really since I had been in high school, that this was the way to quickly make some cash and also grab a meal. All right. So... Um... I was telling you that when I was 20, when I was 20 years old, I got this job in Greensboro, North Carolina, working at a factory and I had a job. Literally my job was taking dents out of empty beer cans. <laughs> they were, um, they were being stored in a warehouse before sh- being shipped to a brewery. Only a certain percentage of the cans could have dents in order for them to accept the shipment. So if there was a life lesson in that job, I still have not figured it out. <laughs> Did you, <laughs> although it has always made for excellent cocktail party banter when people say, what was the worst job you ever had? That reminds you that um, nothing's ever perfect too, right? 
It's completely, yeah. completely. Did you know while you were a bartender that you were learning about the attributes of leadership or was it only upon reflection? I had no idea, um, quite uh-huh. frankly, that that's what I was really learning. I, I did know that I was learning how to manage things um, because when you're a bartender and, and helping to in a place with a small restaurant, you're actually really helping to run that restaurant also because how quickly you ring a check determines how quickly... Um, the tables can turn over. But I was uh, 20-something years later um, having dinner with a dear friend of mine, Robin Torres at Marist College. She runs the Emerging Leaders Program of all things. And I looked at her at one point and I said, you know, Robin, everything I do, I, I really, I'm just bartending. And when I said the same exact <laughs> thing, it's true, you know, whether you're working with a client or you're working with a dean or you're working with your students or you're Working with publishers, it's all those same skills about managing personalities and and having the right capabilities and being patient and communicating and reading behind the the scenes. It was all the same stuff. And when I said the same exact thing to her a year later, she pushed a cocktail napkin in front of me and she said, you're going to think about this as leadership and tell it to my emerging leader students. And that's how I really began to articulate orally for, I don't know, maybe six or seven years, this idea I had about, wow, everything I learned behind that bar is is really about leadership and it's really what's helped me become successful. So how do I share that with others? And that's how it grew up, yeah. Yeah, funny. So, but I'm in, but I'm intrigued because you just said, you know, leadership bartending is a lot about management, right? So, here you are getting your MBA. You're managing the bar of an upscale restaurant in New York, and and just if I can, just to be devil's advocate for a minute, why why is your why is your book not called Everything I Know About Management? I learned from being a bartender because I actually think of bartending as a management, just sort of managing the sort of the intricacies of what's going on and, you know, and t- all, all of that. So why is, why is it a leadership lesson about bartending and not a management lesson? That's actually a, a great question. Management is planning, organizing, communicating, controlling. It's, it's doing things to get things running. And while a leader could have great management skills, managers don't necessarily have to be leaders or have good leadership skills. The difference is as a leader is that you're always making choices, not about what to do and how to get it done, but about how you're going to approach that, what your style is going to be, um, what decisions you're going to make. You know, there's a lot of times when you're managing something where you could make a decision to um, take a very strict course of action. You could make decisions about um, just sticking by the book. And as a leader, you, you begin to decide, you know, what's the flavor of this going to be? Who, who do I want these people to be who work with me? What is it that we're trying to create together? And that's a very different viewpoint than just managing. It's taking that next step to, to recognize that not only are we all in this together, but we can, we can create a wake for this proud armada of ships so that as they sail along, they not only know where they're going, but make it a little easier. And to me, that's much so, more about leadership. Yeah, it's interesting. So as a bartender, and, and uh, I, I can certainly say that I have, <clears throat> I've never been a bartender, but I have experienced more than my fair share of bartenders. Um, who does a bartender lead? 
bartender leads many different factions, the bar, in, including herself, which I'd like to talk about last, if that's okay. A bartender, yes, leads, we'll a bartender leads the staff, right? So how you approach your staff, if you kind of get them to line up the glasses you need as you're going so you could move more quickly, if you can always give them preferential treatment, even though you have people sitting behind the bar, because the faster you get those waiters and waitresses, you know, off your bar and back into the dining room, the faster their tables turn, the more well you can serve more people. Um, you have to manage the people at the bar. So if you bring them into your story and you let them know that, hey, we're having this really busy night, we're getting slammed, I just want to get, you know, the waiter out there and then I'll come back and chat with you. If you, if you tell them that there's a, a party going on in the next room or if you bring them into your little world, People at the bar are much more willing to be patient and to wait and not to get everything they need in that moment. You also make decisions about managing those people with each other at the bar. So if you start introducing customers to each other, they, they start becoming friendly. You can create a small community where people are coming in for more than just a drink. They're coming in to connect. And if they're connecting with each other, it's a little less hard work for you, the bartender, because now you're not entertaining all of these separate individuals. You can be entertaining groups of people. And then you, you think about leading yourself. Like, what is the tone that, that I, as the bartender, am going to set? You know, bartenders can be aloof. They could be very friendly. They could be flirty. They could be very professional. Um, they could tell jokes. They could do magic tricks. They can, they can be your psychiatrist. They can be your quiet companion. You really have to understand that um, each different person, different times of day, different times of season, you really need to approach people in very different ways. And the only way you could do that is if you're aware enough of yourself and the things that you can do and who you are to bring those things to bear in all of those different groups. Oh, and you're also, of course, you know, you manage your boss. I hate to say it that way. You can lead that person also because... Just because that person might be in a really bad mood or really angry about something doesn't mean you have to play into that. You can decide to lead yourself and have a very different approach to it and maybe create some levity in a situation instead of making it worse. Now, are you, um, uh, 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 I want to get into your um, uh, sort of the ingredients, right? The the cocktail mm -hmm. of leadership, if you will. Sure. But I'm assuming that you are a different kind of leader with people at the bar, depending on how you read them. Is that right? So you talked about, Absolutely. you know, I mean, I don't know if you do magic tricks. I, I would not surprise me. Um, but I, I'm assuming that you read somebody and then you decide what kind of bartender they need. Is that right? That's pretty close to the truth. I mean, I am who I am, but there's, mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, there's many flavors in my ice cream cone. So you know, some people really want you to just drop, you know, a bowl of peanuts in front of them, remember their face and their drink, nod, not talk to them until they've had their first drink and read their newspaper. You know, other people really want that big greeting and they want you to ask them how their day went. Um, yep. it's, you have to stay very aware of your surroundings. Definitely true. Okay, so... The, the sort of the core tenant of your book is about this um, sort of the cocktail of leadership. And um, 
I like your, I like your acronym. It's not cheesy and it's not, you didn't have to stretch for it. The acronym is advice. I liked it. And, um, your job, should you choose to accept it, Helen, yes. is to walk us through each, each step, each letter, what it stands for. And, um, you know, anything you think our listeners, particularly those people who are, you know, re- remembering that you're talking to people who run nonprofit organizations, they're in the change business, um, uh, they're in the social service business. Some some of the folks are board members, so they have they're not they're not doing it for a you know for pay. They're doing it for passion. Um, so as you think as you go through your acronym, you're thinking about the listeners, just as you think about the folks at your bar, and um, and ha- take them through uh, take them through the the components of it. Uh, and, um, I probably will interrupt you from time to time with questions cause that's just that kind of gal I am. And we love that about you, by the way. Um, so thank you. Uh, and, and I just want to say, uh, there's a, a really beautiful example of a not-for-profit leader in the book. Her name is Dr. Vicki Sylvester. She's in the integrity chapter, which is the I and advice number four. Um, but she really embodies all of this and, um, it, it is messy, you know, not-for-profits, as you say in your book. And I think this model is helpful. So go through the model, and then why don't you take us through, I think that would be really useful, is why don't you take us through that particular leader and how sure. she hits on all the elements. That'd be great. So advice, A, is action. Do more and say less. Uh, it's easy sometimes to talk about all the things that could be done and all the things you want to do and... Uh, it's, it's so much better to just start doing things. Um, and that action uh, will be directed by vision, which is V, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, D, determination. Um, have the stick-to-itiveness to get things done and to do it with both ingenuity and civility. Um, it takes a lot to uh, see something through. It takes a lot to get the right people to work in your organization. It takes a lot to do the hard work in not-for-profits. Oftentimes, the not-for-profit workers are maybe paid a little less and um, are doing work that, that's really hard, especially those people in the human services. Um, and there's a determination to get things done. Um, and sometimes you're doing it against really hard odds. And there's a way to do that with real creativity and civility. Um, vision. Vision should drive your action and the determination to get things done. Vision is really understanding where you want to get to. Um, not why you exist. That would be mission. But vision, where, what are you reaching for? What's possible? And if you, if you could see out onto the horizon, then, then you understand what actions you need to take and, and how your determination can get you there. Integrity, the I in advice. Um, everything that you do should really be done with honesty and truth and in line with your core values. Because the minute you start acting in a way that goes outside of that line, um, it's going to be harder to stick to what you do. And in the end, you want to be proud of where you got to, um, or at least be proud of the journey you took. So integrity is core. Um, The scene advice is communication. I think probably the hardest thing 
to do really well and consistently uh, in any of our endeavors because some so much of communication isn't um, obvious. It isn't just language. It isn't just voice. It's also people's behaviors. It's reading the look on their face. It's feeling the tension in the room. It's ensuring that what you're trying to get across to people is actually what they're getting from you. I mean, we think we're such good communicators. And then when you ask people about the message you're sending, they've heard something very different. So it's really something you have to be very awake and patient with. Um, And then last and certainly not least, the E in advice is empathy. Um, It's about daring to care. It's about understanding that everybody has a story. And if people are important to you, the people you work with, the people you care for, the people that you have to engage with in a professional level, um, to look behind the facade and try to understand who's really there and how to best work with them and facilitate them. Um, That's a very powerful ingredient. And I would also add here something I've I've just become much more aware of recently. Empathy is also about empathy for yourself and recognizing that you work hard and you try hard and sometimes things work out and sometimes they don't, and it's okay. That's just how it goes. You have to let yourself off the hook. You've got to give yourself a break. I I, I don't know who's harder on us than ourselves. So that's the advice model. And... The story of Dr. Vicki Sylvester. Um, she is the CEO, the ED of an organization called Community Based Services um, in Westchester, and they provide um, residential and day services to the most se- to severely disabled adults. That's the niche that she serves. And I first met Vicki. Oh, decades ago when I was doing um, some board development with um, the School for Autism in Strasburg, New York, and Vicki was on the board, and we just clicked, and I started working with her organization and have been working with her as both consultant and I'm proud to say friends now uh, for over 20 years. So the first thing community-based services needed to do was grow, and um, Vicki um, opened more homes. And, and the thing about Vicki that's really different is uh, she really not only loves her clients, but really understands how to work with very few resources. Her agency is dependent upon monies from the state, um, some monies from the federal government, um, and some money that you fundraise. And she's just got what I call money karma. She figures it out. And she mm-hmm. does it in a way that the homes her people live in are gorgeous, and her clients, the people she cares for, are dressed beautifully. And she does beautiful gatherings for for them and the families. and And the families love Vicky. She just, she just really, I can't explain. It, she really gets it. Um, so when about five years ago, the governor decided there'd be no more um, increases in reimbursement for her her type of agency, um, we had to figure out how do we still deliver the level of care without, um, with less money. And there's just so much you could keep going back to the well. So we looked at it strategically and we said, okay, let's, uh, let's create a commissary, let's centralize supply chain and let's, you know, get all the food that we buy from one source, you know, let's buy for all the eight houses in the same place. At that point, that, that was the size of the agency. She hired somebody who used to run, a guy named Alan, who 
had his own restaurants and, and had graduated from the Culinary Institute and taught all the house managers how to create these beautiful, delicious, nutritious meals. And then whatever clients were capable, they started working and helping in the commissary. So everybody won. That was really great. Then the next year, her budget was decreased by 4%. Now, this isn't Vicky refused to do things that other agencies did, such as if a client wound up in a hospital, other agencies could no longer send somebody to be with that person in the hospital. Vicky didn't want to do that. Her integrity rested on understanding that her job was to provide the highest possible quality of life for these people. And mm -hmm. so what do you do now? You know, so we started looking at what else gets funded and she, she created all kinds of day programs. For, uh, that other agencies can use as well for their clients. So those who can go out and do other things, we had that. And then the next two years later, another 4%, 8% out of the budget, no raises. And this all the while, you know, people's salaries are going up and the cost of healthcare is going up, et cetera. And now what do you do? And she did what any, you know, I guess crazy person who's in love with their dogs would do. She had Alan, the head of the commissary, ex-restaurateur, create healthy dog treats. And she created a dog treats company called Good Reasons. And her clients that are capable get to work next to able-bodied people in, in this uh, manufacturing environment. We've all tasted the treats that were vegetarian. They're delicious, of course, right? We wouldn't feed something to our dogs that we wouldn't eat ourselves. And um, through her force of will, uh, she is um, well distributed. She's had a spot on the news. She, I think, will be or just was on QVC, um, and she's starting to keep, you know, make up those budget deficits while providing enriched experiences for her clients. And hopefully, as those profits start to come in, it can everyone's quality of life. So she has the vision of what people's lives should look like. She took action to make sure that budget cuts were not going to affect her agency. She was determined to figure out any change in her business that was needed to not go against her vision, which was everybody's quality of life has to remain the same. She had the integrity to do it with civility and courage, and she communicates to everybody because she has to and figured out how to even communicate to the public because so much of good reasons and their kickoff was marketing. So that was a whole new skill. And that all comes from the empathy she feels for not only the, the people who's who are under her care, but also for their families so they could feel confident that their loved one's lives wouldn't change. That's the advice <clears throat> model. She's a great cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also sounds like quite a remarkable person. Remarkable well. woman. Yes. Um, so there's a, a lot to unpack in what you said. So I wrote down a couple of things I wanted to just uh, follow up on. Um, first of all, um, treating the, what I was really struck by in your conversation is not just giving, not just giving her clients the basics, but going beyond that. You talked about the housing being beautiful and that that doesn't necessarily have to cost more money, that there are ways to make, you know, this is a m marginalized community, right? Yes. People who feel, feel less than. And she created an environment, she has created an environment for them that feels really special. And um, my guess is that these are people that don't often feel 
special. And how wonderful is that? And that is, I mean, clearly that empathy bell is going off big time there, but this notion of, uh, of, you know, we don't need to just put a roof over their heads. Like it needs to be lovely. Like that's lovely. Yes. Yes. The second thing, the the second thing that really struck me here, and I wondered, um, uh, this is a, a kind of a hackneyed phrase and people are, are certainly overused, but where does creativity and innovation fall into advice? Could you make an argument? I mean, certainly communication that that C belongs there, but one of the things that you really are talking about with regard to this particular individual is how she was able to completely, I mean, by the, like, maybe it's the determination vision combination cocktail, but I wondered if you, if you felt like advice was sort of missing the sort of innovation creativity that you described to say, okay, I don't have the money. (laughs) Was that Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland thing? I've got a barn, I've got a broom, let's put on a show. Right. Right, And, (laughs) uh, uh, um, and, but to like start, like to start the dog treat adventure. I mean, that's, that's something, where does that rest in the advice model? Because that's just really amazing. And it does rest there. It rests in determination. It rests in determination being driven by ingenuity. Because people could be determined to get somewhere, and you could step on a lot of people, and you can hurt a lot of people on that road. Or you could decide to get somewhere and figure out how to get there in, the, in a creative and civilized way, right? That's why determination is both ingenuity and civility. Um, it's, it's about finding a way to get where you want to get to in a, in a very different mode. And ingenuity is creativity and it is innovation and is a bit of courage because it very likely could fail. You know, I, I tell a story in the book in the determinate, one of the stories in the book in determination is about this waitress who was hired at the restaurant who was shaped like Jessica Rabbit. So she certainly was eye candy. And the only thing she was good at was having buttons on her blouse magically pop open without her hands. She could not serve a drink without spilling it. She, she was just awful. And, and but that first thing now that strikes me as quite a skill. It, well, it was quite a skill, but not for serving food, but right. for what her ultimate thing was. So that it's so beautiful. You said that. So, and our boss wouldn't fire her. And, we knew that if we nastied her out of there, something bad could happen, right? Because if our boss wasn't firing her and he knew she wasn't good, there had to be a bigger reason why he was keeping her on. So, you know, I kind of realized that we got to figure out how to get her to leave on her own. And how do we do that? Well, with that skill, what is she really looking for? You know, she said she was an actress because we know the, the joke in New York is anytime you say you're an actress or an actor, we always say what restaurant. Um, just, that's just how it goes. Uh, and you know, she was really looking for a guy with a wallet and, you know, we just kind of helped orchestrate her finding the right kind of guy at the bar. So she would leave and, you know, that's ingenuity, that's innovation, that's creativity. That's, that's getting what you need to happen without hurting anybody. If, if, and, and, and doing it in a way that normally you might not have done it. You know, we, we pushed in much more quickly. Uh, 
a special kind of evening after hours activity at the bar. We started creating a nightclub and, you know, we invited certain types of people. And the first time I saw, and actually I was set up by the boss and that's all in the book, but the first time I saw, you know, guys who I knew with a new friend who had a big, beautiful watch on his wrist, I asked this waitress to bring him a drink for me. Um, Mm -hmm. Knowing that that click might, might help open up everybody's avenue, right? He's there by himself, maybe looking for a nice gal. And she certainly was looking for a way out of the restaurant and everybody won in the end. So that's That's where the creativity comes in. And that's where the courage comes in. And, you know, Sometimes it does take courage to do something that you don't know is going to work, right? And sure. But if civility is behind it and you're clear on what your intentions are, I think, I think you might have stacked the deck a little bit there. So. Right. So we're talking to Helen Rothberg, who is, um, uh, started her career as a part-time bartender while pursuing her MBA in New York City. Today, she's a leadership trainer at Fortune 500 companies, small startups, and nonprofit organizations. And her unique brand of training is rooted in, yes, you guessed it, her experience in tending bar. She is the author of The Perfect Mix, Everything I Know About Leadership I Learned as a Bartender. So the subtitle of your empathy chapter is Love Your Bar Back. Mm -hmm. Uh Bar back is only as good as the bar back. A bartender is only as good as a bar back who, if I have this right, is kind of like the bartender's sous chef. So at nonprofits, at nonprofits, your bar backs are your, your support, your volunteers, your support staff, you're the ED, you know, your leadership staff. How does a great leader manifest empathy for her village of support? And I wouldn't mind at all if you, if you told the story about the gruff guitar player. Oh. You know, we can only be as good as the people who support us. Um, There's only so much any of us could do by ourselves. And it's interesting how even if you look at what a restaurant or a bar is, it's, it's it's a lot like any other kind of business. You're managing um, people who have different needs and wants. There's a set staff that's paid, and there are people who come and go, and um, it gets, as I love your language, it gets pretty messy in there. And I was waitressing um, at a restaurant in the Catskill Mountains called Singers, which was a full deli, um, Chinese, and American menu. Now, if you think about that, that's 11 condiments on the table at any point in time. <laughs> and being the youngest person there, um, I got the crappy tables, and no offense to those of you with families, but crappy tables are multi-generational tables with six or eight people where nobody could tell you what they want at once. The good tables are couples who are staring in each other's eyes and ordering cocktails and tripling their checks just by carrying a glass over to them. So this was my life there. And there were two really senior um, older waitresses who kind of ran the show, the boss was even, the the owner of the restaurant was afraid of them. And the three or four of us who were on staff at any one time, we only had one busboy and his name was Eduardo. And Eduardo um, didn't speak English and was a young man who was very serious and would uh, basically do what the 
cranky older waitresses did wanted him to do and whatever was left was for me and that might not sound like a lot but you know in this place there was never enough silverware there was never enough rolls and even if i came in early and i hid a bunch of rolls in a secret place these waitresses had been there for decades they knew every secret place you know i was always struggling and having the bigger tables i was always behind the eight ball and eduardo you know and can't blame him was working for the people who were there all year and who probably were making better money and who yelled at him. And I never yelled at him. Um, so we had this one uh, night that was just so awful. It's called Camp Weekend. You know, it's, I, I don't know if all cultures do the, this, but I will say it's, it's core to the Jewish culture to send your kids away for summer camp for the whole summer. And somewhere in the middle, you feel a little guilty. So you go up there to visit and you take them out for a meal. And that means you're taking them to my restaurant and making me run like crazy. And at the end of that night, you're so tired, your eyelashes hurt. And I just wanted to catch a breather one night. So I stepped outside of the restaurant into the back alley. And I, I heard this most impossible, beautiful music. And I tiptoed around the corner. And there sitting on this filthy oil drum in his dirty sneakers and his, his uniform that looked like, um, you know, an abstract painting at that point was Eduardo with his eyes closed playing classical guitar. And he was somewhere other than there and the music was beautiful and mournful. I almost felt like I was intruding and I tiptoed away from there and I found out the next day from the nice chef um, Felipe, that Eduardo had been a very accomplished musician in his province in Guatemala. He had gone to conservatory. And when the coup occurred, his older brother disappeared and his mother got very frightened for his safety and she smuggled him out of the country. And here he had been for the last five years working, saving every penny that he could, his dream being to be able to somehow get his mother to America. And in that moment, I, my whole understanding of who and what Eduardo changed. He um, had already lost so more than I would ever understand in, in my life. And I, I just felt for him and um, went across the street to this little craft store we had from the restaurant called Liberty Crafts. And spoke to the owner there, who is the poet laureate of Liberty, and we got him a record player and some records, and we made a deal with him, because he wouldn't take a gift from us, that he could play for us a couple nights a week, and we bought him the records and record player so he could learn new music, and, and we would be his audience. And so for about a week, we met behind the restaurant and sat on the dirty oil drums, and the owner of the shop across the street, Walter, got pretty tired of that, so he decided, you know what, let's just go to my store, you know, and he put the lights on and Eduardo would play. And then something really magical happened because the music started wafting through the transoms of the store and people were stopping and it's 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night looking in the window. So we opened the door and they, they walked around the store and, and picked up a trinket or two. And we put a hat in front of Eduardo and they, dropped coins in the hat in front of Eduardo and everybody got what they needed. Um, you know, from then on in, I did have my silverware and my rolls, but it wasn't that in that moment, you know, Eduardo was able to feel he's taken back some of who he really is, this musician who people enjoy listening to. And 
we got to feel as if we weren't just cogs in this wheel pushing the town of Liberty in the summer. We, we all kind of felt in that moment we were part of a bigger community. And right. the summer was never the same after that. Yeah. So, you know, it, it pays to dare to care. We all, it, it's a lot of work to learn people's stories. And sometimes you could do something about it and sometimes you can't. But even just knowing can help you approach a situation so much differently. Um, it, it's a, it's a, it is a story that is rich uh, on many, many levels. Um, and uh, it's the one that most stuck with me in a book that is chock full of stories. Um, so we are just about out of time. And as it all, as typically happens, I will send a list of questions to my guest, and I just never get all the way through them because the conversation goes in a variety of different directions. But I have uh, two uh, two quick ones. Sure. So for those of you, and I, I hope you will uh, uh, head to Amazon and pick up a copy of this book because, you know, for all the books there are on leadership and um, I, I've, I, I've read them and in the world of nonprofit leadership, I've even wrote one. Um, uh, you know, you really want to look for one that's really authentic and grabs lessons from a whole host of places and is not overly sort of instructive or clinical. And not only will you not find this in Helen's book, but in fact, at the end of every chapter, you'll, you'll find a drink menu and uh, with the breakdown of the ingredients thoughtfully outlined. And um, what was your thinking there? And was that, I assume that must've been sort of really the fun part of writing this book. And I assume you had a designated, a designated writer or driver. <laughs> Yeah, it was, um, it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, each ingredient really does tie back to something in the story. And I wanted to create a little levity um, as we went through the quote unquote stories and lessons of leadership, because it's hard. It's hard work. You know, my next book is going to be about relationships at work, and I'm going to do drinks and dessert, right? Because you really need help there. But it's it. It's, um, it's a way to create um, some thoughtfulness. You know, all the drinks have either fresh fruit or herbs in them to augment them. And mm -hmm. each ingredient is either about helping you to digest or has an additional <laughs> property or is good for, you know, your heart or, you know, is able to calm you down a bit. I actually, um, a little birdie told me that one of your favorite drinks is a gimlet. Mm -hmm. which is a very, very classic drink. I was not surprised by that, but um, we could augment that a little that if you're in a, a position where you feel you need a little more warming and, um, and you want to put your brain into it a little more, if you throw a touch of thyme and rosemary in there, uh, it, it changes the drink. And if the drink is there to be a little bit more cooling and to relieve some inflammation, if you will, whether it's of the brain or, or anything, you could drop a little cucumber in there and it would Lovely. be a nice little twist. Yeah. So it creates fun. And, you know, and the cocktails can also become quote unquote mocktails. You can mix juices and herbs and fruits to get the same kind of effect, but it's kind of helped people to, to be able to toast each other and toast themselves for doing this hard work. Very nice. One of the last questions I have is, uh, so I have obviously had to pitch a book to, a uh, uh, to an agent and, um, 
was this a hard book to sell or did you get people at hello? You know, it's an interesting question. Um, People loved the title before the book was ever written because I was doing it orally. And I was lucky enough um, to have some great mentors, people who I've consulted to who read for me. Um, The original version of this book was longer and had this whole journey up front of me from a kid at Woodstock and through waitressing to bartending. And I was introduced... um, through one of the people I consulted to, this wonderful CEO, David Bell, he introduced me to Judith Kerr at Atria. So that was really lovely. Most people don't get that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And she said no, <laughs> actually. The first version was a no. And the editor there, um, Leslie Meredith, lovely gal, uh, said, but there's stuff here that I like. I kind of like the idea. And I followed her to the elevator. And I said, Leslie, there's no David or Judith in the room. Is there something here? She said, yes, but not that structure. And she, right. she gave me a couple of books to read, and I thought about it. And I, actually, Joan, I hadn't thought about it till this minute. So there I was in, in Dublin speaking uh, at a conference. And as soon as I was done speaking, I head to an uh, a Irish pub and had an Irish coffee. And I sat down, having read all of these little books that I really didn't enjoy, Um, But I really thought about what is it I want to do and what is it I want this book to say. And that's where the advice model really got its legs. Mm -hmm, And I mm -hmm. rearranged stories and rewrote drinks and came back. And then it was a yes. And then it was even harder to get an agent. Like I I created my deal and then I got an agent. And that also then became through my network. Um, I'm with the LGR agency. Monica Verma is a peach. She's a real champion of women. And... um, you know, I was able to get an agent to finally pay attention to me when I sent an email saying, so-and-so from your childhood said you have to talk to me. And, yeah. uh, and went that way. It's hard. It's very hard, but never give up. I mean, I've, I've written other books that no one should ever read. And um, <laughs> ever. That's and what academics do. <laughs> but, you know, if we and look both at of people- advice- Right, and both of the people who read them enjoyed them immensely, right? Right, very much, right. It was my, my tenure and promotion committee, probably, and they probably didn't read the whole thing either. But, you, you know, if you're going to take the advice, the real thing about the advice is to read yourself. So whether you're publishing a book or you're, you're working your, your agency or you're working with your board or whatever it is you're trying to do, you know, if you choose to really read yourself and, and, and act that way, then you could provide others with the courage and the impetus to lead themselves as well. And when people are leading themselves together, um, evolving and accomplishing great things, great, great things can happen. And yep. that's really my wish for anyone who's reading this book. Well, and it, um, and I, 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 I think your uh, message was firmly delivered to the folks who are listening today. And we are on that note, it seems like the perfect note to, uh, uh, to send you off. Um, I'm going to go packing to get out of the cold weather and into the warm weather. And um, I just wanted to say thank you so much for the lessons in the book, for writing a book that is really, really um, thoughtful, accessible, fun, many of the attributes that I most admire in people. So thank you so much. And thank you so much for the opportunity um, to be with you today. So um, I just want to just end by uh, just reminding folks that. This podcast is one of a series of resources that I provide to board and staff leaders. You can find my podcast on iTunes. 
It also is posted every week on my blog at joangary.com, where you can subscribe to my weekly emails. People often say, Joan, were you in my office yesterday hiding in my coat closet? <laughs> so, um, uh, and the answer is typically no, that I just think there are many, many, many universal messages and lessons in nonprofit leadership, and I like to share them with you. Uh, I do also have a book, which you can learn more about at nonprofitsarmessy.com. And for those of you who run small nonprofits, uh, I launched an online membership site earlier this year called the Nonprofit Leadership Lab. Uh, it is a uh, content and community. Uh, it will be back open for registration in the spring, but you can learn more about that at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Until next time, thank you so much for joining us. And I hope that you took away some, uh, some valuable lessons. I know I did, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much. Nonprofits are Messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the Nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com.